shine the light of truth, to bring justice to the restless souls whose lives were lost to their hands. Rise up against the evildoers of this world so that their souls may have peace. We will not surrender. We will fight. We will stand for what is right because we are the Justice Warriors. Hello, Justice Warriors. I know it's been a few months since we've done a podcast, but Tracy and I are back and we're ready for action. Since you last heard from us, I've expanded my investigative agency to include fugitive recovery, and man, oh man, has it been an exciting ride. My intentions for this podcast is to go over the Karen Swift case and catch everyone up to speed on some of the events that have taken place in our investigation into the case over the past couple years. We've done things in parts and we've offered bits and pieces, which can be kind of confusing to our listeners. So I plan to make this episode sort of the granddaddy of them all, cramming as much information as possible into one episode. It's going to be a long, bumpy ride, so buckle your seatbelts and keep your arms and legs inside the ride at all times. What I am trying to get away from in this episode, however, is speculation. Um, We won't quite share as much of our um, thoughts on things, but we're going to try to stay as close as possible just to the facts of the information that we've received and the timeline of events, uh, which is the main focus of this particular episode. So are you ready? I'm here, buckled up and ready to go. Perfect. So I wanted to start out with just kind of a background on David and Karen. And um, we're, today we're discussing the murder of Karen Swift uh, in Dyersburg, Tennessee, in 2011. So David and Karen Swift moved to Dyersburg for a fresh start. They've been through a lot already, and having been divorced and remarried already once, they had both had affairs. Um, Almost a decade prior, David had fathered a child with another woman uh, whom he had had a brief relationship with during he and Karen's separation. But as always, David and Karen ended up reconciling, and he made a very difficult choice not to be involved in the child's life because of how difficult it was for everybody, including the child. But years later, it was Karen who encouraged David to reunite with his son. Um, Things certainly were not peaches and cream for the Swifts, and obviously they didn't always get along. But through my investigation into her murder, I have not found a single person who has said that David had a temper or a tendency to become violent. In fact, most people describe him as being somewhat passive. That's why um, I am of the belief that David Swift did not kill his wife. Today, I'm going to take you through some of the events that led up to the fateful morning of October 30th, 2011. I'll try to do my best to keep it somewhat in chronological order so that you can kind of get a timeline of events because I'll tell you one thing, there were some very interesting things happening in Swift's life just before her murder. Karen was a social butterfly, and she seemed to really enjoy her life in Dyersburg. Uh, She had made some friends that she was spending a lot of time with, and she was teaching classes at the YMCA. But Karen also had a bit of a temper, and anyone who knew her would tell you 
that that cute little thing wasn't scared of anyone. She had even gotten into a very heated confrontation not long before she disappeared with another mother at the dance studio where her children were taking classes. So to say that Karen was a mama bear would be a bit of an understatement. Um, A neighbor of the Swifts said in an interview that he had witnessed a man who was not David pulling out of the Swifts garage on a bike and that Karen had left shortly after him. He was unsure of the identity of that man, so he said he was just trying to mind his own business. So he never really said too much about it. But Karen's social life was becoming more and more of a problem at home. In an interview with her husband, he said that he had caught Karen sneaking out in the middle of the night, and that when he asked her where she was going, she told him she was going to Walmart to buy some food for breakfast. Um, But when he offered to make that run for her, she became very angry with him and insisted that she would be the one to go. Now, let me just say that I have been cheated on and that I believe that most people would probably make some effort at that point to catch their significant other in whatever it is that they're up to. And at least in my own case, there's always been a part of my mind that wants to think that nothing's going on. Most people in this position are dealing with an inner dialogue that consists of the logical mind telling you that you're being lied to, and the not-so-logical side, the emotional side, telling you that you're just being crazy and insecure. So what is there to do but to seek the truth? That, in my opinion, is what David set out to do on that particular night. And also, a little side note, it's kind of what Uh, I make a living off of. I'm a private investigator and there are a lot of people out there that just need the truth. So they hire somebody to follow their significant other and find out what they're doing, which there's a very fine line between, you know, between that and stalking really, if you think about it, but you know, but people need to know the truth. So that night David went to Walmart um, and he found Karen's vehicle parked in the parking lot. Um, he called her and he told her, uh, that, or he asked her where she was. And she said that she was in the clothes section at Walmart and she had found a shirt on the sales rack that she really liked. She even went as far as to describe the shirt. But when he went to that section of the store where she was supposed to have been, she wasn't there. And at this point he knows he's being lied to, but that isn't enough. He needs to know more. So He goes to her car and he has a spare key, so he lets himself in. He climbs in the back seat. After a while, he sees her friend, Kathy Bona, pull up in her vehicle and he sees his wife get out of her vehicle. He confronts his wife in front of Kathy and um, he asks where she's been and nobody would tell him. And Kathy just replies, I'm not getting into this. So that's a little bit of what was going on leading up to Karen's disappearance. Now, over the past going on two years, I have interviewed several of Karen's friends, and although some of them did view David as controlling because of things like this, not one of them told me that they considered him to be abusive, or rather, nobody told me anything that I consider to be abusive, and there's never been a domestic call or charge that we've been able to find. David has admitted to me that he didn't like the way that Karen was behaving and that he was trying to keep his family and his marriage together, but 
He denies any involvement in her murder, and he says that he would have never hurt her. I've spoken with one witness who claims to have also spoken to law enforcement, who admitted to me that he was having an affair with Swift in the months leading up to her disappearance. And although he says that he and Swift had ended things before her disappearance on October 30th, 2011, he does seem to have an awful lot of information about the day that she went missing, including that she had had lunch with her husband that day. But I'll get into that in a minute. Right now, I want to talk a little bit about a tiff that the victim had gotten into with a neighbor. It turns out Three weeks before Karen disappeared, on October 7th, a man named John Hogshooter poisoned the Swift's dog. Hogshooter pled guilty to one charge of aggravated animal cruelty and another of just animal cruelty, but he wasn't given any jail time. Instead, he was given probation uh, and told to get out of town. Witnesses say that when Karen found out that Hogshooter had poisoned her dog, She went to his house and confronted him personally. Okay, so that was October 7th. Now, the next noteworthy event um, in our investigation is October 10th. Three days later, Swift filed for divorce from David. And as soon as she did, she took her daughters and she left for vacation with her friends, again, Bill and Kathy Bona. It was said that Karen did this because she did not want to be there when David was served with the divorce papers. However, she did not move out of the marital home. Instead, she returned from the trip and she chose to remain in the home with her estranged husband while they were going through these divorce proceedings. So then another interesting tidbit of information surrounding this event is that Karen allegedly entered into a contract for $2,000 for a loan from Bill Bona. Uh, Kathy's husband for help with her divorce and the collateral listed in this contract uh, was David Swift's four-wheeler. On Saturday, October 29, 2011, so we're fast-forwarding to the day uh, of the Halloween party, the day all of this starts to uh, heat up, Karen spent most of the day working at a Habitat for Humanity house. David texted her that afternoon asking if she would like to go to lunch, which I learned this from the man who admitted to having an affair with the victim. And this prompted me to ask David about whether he had or not gone to lunch with Karen that day. David said that Karen asked him to bring her lunch instead of going to lunch with him because she was dirty from working. So David and their youngest daughter brought lunch to Karen and they stayed there for a while to help out. David left the Habitat for Humanity house at about 2.30 p.m. and Karen got home around 5 p.m. As soon as she got home, she started getting ready for the Halloween party at the Farms Golf Club where she had planned to go again with her friends Bill and Kathy Bona. David stayed home with their youngest daughter that night and the oldest daughter went to a Halloween party at a friend of hers house. So it has been said although unconfirmed that Karen may have attended another Halloween party prior to meeting up with the Bonas to go to the farms. And we do know that when she arrived at the Bonas that evening, she was already in costume and had her her hair and makeup done. So there are also conflicting stories surrounding a confrontation between Karen Swift and Dina Sells Katormis, the wife of a man that Swift was said to have also been having an affair with. 
Some say the confrontation happened and others say that it did not. But what might be worth mentioning is the fact that Dina does come from a very prominent family and her father is, let's just say, very well politically connected. I was just thinking about the audio or the video from the news program of um, Daryl Sells talking at the cross where he said that uh, his daughter attended the party, but he doesn't even think she saw Karen Swift. Yeah, and Tracy, that's definitely something that we will be discussing a little bit later. Okay, great. So this is where the story becomes a bit convoluted because Swift's connection to the Sells family seems to be through Bill and Kathy Bona, who have been known to throw some pretty wild parties and are allegedly part of a popular swingers club in town. And we do know that Bill and Kathy Bona were friends or are friends with the Katormases, which is Dina Sells Katormas and her husband Bentley. Now, we know this aside from witness statements, we were also able to obtain some pictures from Karen Swift's personal belongings from a 2010 Christmas party at which Swift and the Bonas and the Katormases appear to be there together. The reason this is important to me in my investigation is because it confirms that Swift did have a friendly relationship with the Katormases, which contradicts Dina's father's statement that Dina quote, didn't even know the girl, meaning Swift. So at least one of my witnesses claims to have information pertaining to money that was given to Swift by Dina's husband, Bentley, and that the witness claims, the witness claims that that money was actually the reason for the confrontation that allegedly occurred at the Halloween party on the night that Swift was murdered. All right, so we do know that Karen rode to the Halloween party, which was partially sponsored by the Sells family. Uh, she rode there with the Bonas. And we also know that while she was there, she texted a friend saying that she was not having a good time and she felt like a third wheel. I spoke with that friend about these texts, and she said that her response to Swift was that she should go sit at the bar where she was bound to find somebody to talk to. So HMC Investigations was provided by an attendee of that party with several photos that were taken that night through careful screening. Um, one of the HMC team members, uh, actually Tracy, <laughs> was able to find a photo of Karen sitting at the bar or standing at the bar, whichever it was. And she was talking to Dina Sells Katormas. Kathy Bona is also in that picture. So at some point in the night, Swift received a call or a text from her oldest daughter asking her to pick her up from the party that she was at because she wasn't feeling well. We know that after leaving the party, the Bonas went back to the Bonas house and left again to go to McDonald's to get fries. And when they got back, Swift finished her fries and then left to pick up her daughter. At some point, Karen asked Kathy if she should change, and Kathy told her that what she had on was fine. So Karen was still wearing her costume when she left the Bona's house. But her boots were, quote, in the truck, which is something we've been very confused about because in the audio that we have in our possession, 
Kathy makes a comment about Karen's boots being in the truck, but we're unclear as to whether Karen actually had her boots or was wearing her boots when she left or whether they were in the truck. It's very confusing. A neighbor of the Bonas witnessed a conversation between Bill and Karen in the Bonas front yard at 1 a.m. According to the witness, Bill was trying to get Karen to let him follow her home, presumably because she'd been drinking, but Karen refused. So at 1.44 a.m., Karen arrived at the party to pick up her daughter, and she texted, I'm here. I spoke with her daughter, who claims, claims that her mother was wearing jeans, a black shirt, and tennis shoes when she got there to pick her up. They got home around 2.05 a.m. Her daughter claims that Karen laid down with her, but she remembers her mom picking her up and putting her into bed with her younger sister around 3 a.m. She says she looked at the clock and she saw the three. So sometime in the 3 o'clock hour. And then after that, she says that her mother left the house. At 3.41 a.m., Karen's cell phone disconnected from the Wi-Fi connection at the home. So... We've got about an hour and 20 minutes that passes before uh, the same neighbor that had seen a man leaving Swift's garage uh, prior to this incident actually saw Karen's vehicle on the side of the road on his way to work. It was about 5 o'clock a.m. And uh, he said that it had a flat tire and it was abandoned on the side of the road. So then at about noon... So about seven hours later, David Swift called the neighbors to ask, the same neighbors, um, to ask if they could watch the girls while he went to look for Karen. And that's when that neighbor informed Karen, uh, informed him that Karen's vehicle was on the side of the road, just uh, about a quarter mile up with a flat tire. So David took the girls with him and they went to check it out. And once there, David says that he let himself into the vehicle with his key and when he was inside, he saw a cooler of beer in the back seat with just a couple missing. And her Halloween costume was folded on the seat. So David picked up his cell phone and he called the sheriff on his cell phone. And um, the sheriff told him to call dispatch, which he did right away. So sheriff deputies arrived at the vehicle about 10 minutes later. David also called the Bonas who arrived at the vehicle shortly after. David says he does not remember actually telling the Bonas where the vehicle was. So the sheriff and the investigators and the TBI were allowed into the Swift home that evening when they arrived, and they were allowed to take whatever they wanted. And we're not, David didn't require them to uh, obtain a warrant to search or to take the things that they, that they wanted to take. So one witness claimed on the Monday after Swift's disappearance, that he witnessed some odd behavior on the part of Bentley Katormas, Dina's husband. First, he claimed that Katormas had all four tires switched out at Tucker Tire in Dyersburg. Next, he claims that the driver's side window of his truck had to be repaired because it was, quote, busted out. The witness claims that when he asked Bentley who bust, how the window got busted out, Bentley told him that it was his wife. His wife had done it. The witness also claims that Bentley had talked to him about Swift. And even more interesting, if it's true, 
is the allegation that the witness made about a poncho. The witness says that he saw Katormas throw a poncho into the woods at a cabin in Kentucky. And this is all, you know, the day after Karen's disappearance. And two days after Karen's disappearance, witnesses say that there was a break-in at the farms and that the only item or items that were taken and damaged were the security cameras and the footage. When I first attempted to confirm this, I was unsuccessful. There was no record of it at the local police department. However, the second time that I spoke with the owner, after he had spoken with his business partner, I was told that they did remember the incident, but that they didn't bother reporting it because they knew that it wouldn't meet the insurance deductible. One witness said, an employee uh, that, that worked there at the time said that she remembered it well because when it happened, several of the employees were discussing how it had to have been a quote inside job because whoever did it knew exactly where the wires were to cut. In the days following Swift's disappearance, the sheriff's department, the TBI and volunteers searched surrounding areas for the missing woman. Swift's cell phone was said to have last pinged near the river. So that was where much of the search efforts were focused. David and Karen's sons had been away to college, but they did come back to help when they found out that their mother was missing. The younger of the two sons, while searching for his mother one morning, claims to have seen something that at the time did not seem odd, but later it stood out to him. What he claimed to have seen is a, quote, old man near the cemetery with a metal detector. This didn't seem significant to him at the time, but on December 10th, 2011, when his mother was discovered, when his mother's body was discovered very close to where he had seen the man, that's when it struck him as odd. When he asked the man what he was looking for or what he was doing, he says that the man replied that he was, quote, searching for his watch that he had lost while exercising. Now, Karen's son since he didn't think anything of it at the time, just told the old man to keep an eye out for his mother or anything odd and contact the family if he found anything out of place. And then he went along his way without any real thought of it. Three other witnesses have provided me with statements also claiming to have seen the old man near the cross around the same time. The old man has since been identified as Daryl Sells, Dina Sells Katormas' father. Estelle passionately denies being at or near the cemetery prior to Swift's body being found there. However, on December 13, 2011, just two days after Swift's body was recovered, guess who happened to be on the crime scene when news crews from Memphis showed up to cover the story? You guessed it. Old man sells. So in the well-documented media clip, Sells claims that he was out there just out of curiosity, and he goes on to say that his daughter was at the party that Swift was at the night she disappeared, but that she didn't, quote, recognize her. Wait, what? He, she didn't recognize her. Well, we have a photo that says something very different. So... About one week after Karen's disappearance, Karen's oldest son and his fiance went to the Bonas house to try to get some answers. And we are in possession of the audio from that conversation. 
And I've noted some red flags. First, Kathy refers to Karen in past tense. Quote, she was my best friend. And she says that she was, quote, honest as she could be with detectives. Next, she admits that Karen was, in fact, using a phone line on her husband, Bill Bona's business account. Bill Bona mentions a location that he believes the sheriff's department was planning to search next. That location, belonging to Charlie Whitnell, happens to be very close to where Swift's body ended up being discovered. Fast forward to August 23rd, 2013, when an inmate at the Dyer County Jail broke into the Nissan Murano that Karen was driving on the night she disappeared. At that point, any evidence that may have been present in or on the vehicle would have been inadmissible. And one could argue that if an inmate could have broken into it, that it could have been tampered with prior to this or at any point. It clearly wasn't being preserved in the way that a crime scene and or evidence would or should be preserved. So why then was the tire sent off to an Ohio lab for forensic testing on April 3rd, 2013? The testing resulted in the conclusion that a screw, which was the screw was manually inserted into the tire, had caused the tire to go flat on the night the Swift dis- disappeared. And also, as a result, a search warrant was issued on David Swift for the home. On February 13, 2014, with the permission of General Bivens, Sheriff Fox released the Nissan Murano to Chase Bank for repossession, despite that David Swift's name was also on the loan and that he was not notified of this. I have been provided with Facebook messages between Swift's oldest son and one of the investigators of the Swift murder. Swift's son asked the investigator about the break-in at the farms, the confrontation between Dina and his mother, old man cells being seen at the cemetery, and other things. The investigator replied by telling him, that the break-in and the altercation did not happen, and that his brother was dreaming when he saw cells at the cemetery, and that Bentley Katormis was, quote, homesick on the night that his mother was murdered. To further thicken the plot, I received an unsolicited tip from an, un- from an individual that claims to have first-hand knowledge proving that Bentley Katormis was not at homesick the night that Karen Swift went missing. We know that Katormas was not at the Halloween party either. So, my question is and has always been, where was he? And I hope that uh, the detectives can answer that question because I've yet to be able to answer that question. So, before we go much further, I want to talk about how I actually ended up getting involved in this case. In September of 2018... I was asked to take a look at Swift's autopsy, which I did, and at that point, my friend and assistant, Tracy Ellis, and I decided to do a little digging and to discuss the case on our what was then very new podcast. At the time, we were still very green in a lot of ways. Uh, We were new to podcasting, and although Tracy had followed this case from day one, I was very new to the case. 
What we didn't know was that we'd opened Pandora's box and that this one move would create a ripple effect of events. You see, podcasting is a pretty common tool for private investigators and investigative journalists, not only to share information, but also to obtain information. And oftentimes, it can get a cold case moving again. That is exactly what has happened in this case. By putting ourselves out there front and center and discussing the case and talking about things that some people really did not want talked about, we generated leads from people that otherwise had not been heard. I say this because many of the people who have reached out to us have claimed that on more than one occasion they had attempted to give a statement to the jurisdictional agency and that they were, quote, turned away. In the investigative field, using the podcasting method is often referred to as crowd surfing. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's totally different. Crowd sourcing. And, <laughs> and my bad. I'm thinking of thinking of back in the day at the Pantera concert. No. So uh, anyway, um, in this case, it did work. Um, our first couple of podcasts covering the Swift murder were more of a discussion on the information that we had received. One friend of Swift's had said that Swift told her that she was doing something for money that she was not proud of. Another friend said that she'd admitted to having an affair with a married man and that Swift had made some odd comments about having the law in her, quote, back pocket. Tracy and I have gone back and forth about the meaning of these comments and who the man could have been that she was referring to. But unfortunately, without proof, it is nothing more than speculation. Could Swift have been having sex for money? Or did she have sugar daddies supporting her in her decision to leave her husband? This didn't seem too terribly far-fetched based on information that we obtained pertaining to the relationship of somebody she had previously had a relationship with in Arkansas. The hard truth is that in order to get to the bottom of what happened to Karen Swift, we're going to have to dig up some things about her past that some people may not want to hear. It's my belief that at this point, getting justice is all that matters. After all, we are all human and nothing this woman did would justify ending her life and taking her away from her children. After we did the podcast, I received a very angry call from Daryl Sells, whom at the time we had not referred to by name, but rather as the, quote, prominent man. Sells' name-calling and threatening tactic backfired on him when I decided to publish the call that he made to me to the internet. And this made his identity known to anyone who didn't already know who the prominent man was. What I've never quite understood about Sells is why. If he wasn't at the cemetery and he didn't have anything to do with the disappearance of Karen Swift or, or murder of Karen Swift, that he wouldn't want to address the accusations publicly to clear his name. Instead, he reared his ugly temper head at me and um, 
as if I was the one making the allegations towards him, which I was not. I am simply the investigator and the podcaster who's trying to figure out what happened to Karen Swift, and apparently he didn't want me doing that. So last summer, Tracy and I sat down with the district attorney, General Goodman, and we presented him with the basic outline of our investigation. I explained to him that I did not trust the sheriff in this investigation, that I felt that the investigation into Swift's murder had been, whether intentionally or unintentionally, badly botched. And I asked him to remove the case from the sheriff's department's jurisdiction and give it to the TBI. In exchange, I agreed to provide him with the names and the contact information of my witnesses. In the following week, he met with a special agent in charge of the TBI, and shortly after, there was a statement in the media that DCSO had handed the case file over to General Goodman for review. Whether or not this had anything to do with us, I don't know. But it was very interesting timing. So this is when things got really crazy. A couple months later, one of my witnesses and his attorney were arrested for extortion. And who were they trying to extort? You guessed it, Daryl Sells. So my witness, um, who I hadn't really, I hadn't put a lot of stock into the things he had said, but we were noting them. His name was Mark Morgan. And apparently he had shown up at Sells' place of business and said that he had information. They set up this meeting between Morgan, his attorney, who was Sam Kelly, and Daryl Sells and Daryl's son, Darren. And prior to the meeting, via phone call, Kelly explains to Sells, essentially, that what they were paying for was to, quote, keep information that could hurt their family out of the hands of the feds. Kelly further explains that they would be hiring him to represent them And that way, any information that Morgan had would be protected under the client attorney privilege because they would say that Morgan was working for Kelly as a private investigator when he obtained the information. Now, aside from the fact that this would not prevent the FBI from obtaining information if they should desire it, Kelly says several times, quote, this isn't extortion, which suggests to me that he does realize that what he's doing has some resemblance of extortion. So upon arrival, Daryl and Darren gave Sam Kelly a McDonald's bag full of money. And they begin to discuss uh, what was oddly more about me than the murder of Karen Swift. Sells asks Morgan, who hired me? And Morgan replies that David Swift hired me. They also claim that I had cut and pasted the audio of my conversation with Daryl Sells in which he threatens me and posted it to the internet or published it to the internet. Um, Throughout the conversation with Sells, Morgan fails to mention any of the information that he had given to me. However, he does tell Sells that he was behind him at the crime scene on the day that Karen's body was found and that he saw Sells being let onto the crime scene and Sells does not deny that. If this is true, then that places Sells at the crime scene prior to Swift's body being found, according to four witnesses, on the day that Swift's body was found and two days later when the media interviewed him. Okay, sidebar. 
I do not have a client in this case. <laughs> How many times do I have to say that? I've never received money for my investigative services pertaining to the death of Karen Swift and the audio that I published of my conversation with Daryl Sells is 100% raw. And that's easily proven. So the HMC investigative team, aka Justice Warriors, did attend the preliminary hearing for the extortion case against Morgan and Kelly. We sat in the row in front of the Sells family. And after being questioned on the stand, Sells returned to a seat and leaned forward toward me. And he says, quote, I told you I'd fix that ass. I believe he made the statement because he really thought that he had me when Morgan and Kelly claimed that I was being paid by David Swift. But in one of the audios played on that day in court, Sells also makes the statement that what he'd really like to do is beat my head into the ground, but he couldn't do that because I'm a lady. I just wanted to read from Karen's autopsy report, and it states, under cause of death, blunt force head injury, manner of death, homicide. I just wanted to bring that point up because how the description of Daryl Sells, number one, I was so shocked that he said it. I still can't remember it. It just put me in shock. But when he wanted to beat Heather's head into the ground, it just made flashes of um, how Karen died, blunt force head injury. Yeah, Tracy, you were actually one of uh, several people who had pulled me aside or messaged me later suggesting that I file a restraining order. And, you know, people were very concerned about that statement. The people who had heard that statement um, that was played in court that day, uh, several people were very concerned. And and uh, many have brought up the point that that was actually how Karen Swift died. It just terrifies me. So as I've said before, neither myself or the HMC investigative team, any of the members have that I know of, claim to know who killed Karen Swift, 100%. The evidence that we have does not paint a complete and undeniable picture. All I have is my witnesses and witness statements of people who claim to have firsthand information and who also claim to have been turned away or discredited by law enforcement from day one. So I, I have a serious problem with the way that this case has been handled. And I felt that our witnesses deserve to be heard. The witness that came forward about Bentley's whereabouts on the night that Karen disappeared is now terrified because of an anonymous threat that she received. The witness that says that he saw Bentley throw a poncho into the woods was staying with a man who was also one of my witnesses who has also been threatened and he was threatened personally by Daryl Sells. So in my opinion, this behavior is alarming, to say the very least. And also, in my opinion, witnessing Daryl Sells' temper firsthand has made it more plausible to me that there is something there that needs to be looked at. What? I'm not sure. But I tend to believe that where there is smoke, there is fire. So... Years ago, Sells sued a guy for a bad business deal. That man, his name was Frank Burnett, 
made a public statement through his attorney that he would not testify against Sells unless he was put into, into witness protection because he claims that Sells threatened his life. This is a true story. All you have to do is Google it and it's there for the whole world to see. So my logic in all this is that it's not really hard to believe that the same man who has been conducting his business like this for years is still behaving this way. It seems to me that it's his MO. Now here's another brain twister for you. Is it really so hard to believe that someone who threatens people on the regular might actually have the intent and or means to make that threat a reality? Now, as many of you already know, we were working or are working, we're working on a documentary. For now, that's on hold until General Goodman can reach his decision, which may be tomorrow or it may be never. But in the meantime, I just want you all to know that we haven't gone anywhere. We are still here. We are still fighting for truth. We are still fighting for Dyersburg. We have been in contact with local law enforcement, the district attorney, the TBI, and the FBI, and we are doing our best to bring awareness to this case as well as several others in the area, and we will not give up until justice is served for every single one of them. Tracy and I have both been threatened. And I've learned recently that someone claiming to be law enforcement had contacted some of the, some people from my past attempting to dig up some dirt on me. And I just want to let you know that their bullying tactics are not going to work. We will continue to seek the truth because we are the justice warriors. So on that note, before we close today, I just want to hand it over to Tracy. Tracy, do you have anything you would like to say? Yes, I have several things to add. One, I just wanted to um, confirm that the phone pings on Karen's phone were near the Obion River. Right. So I don't think we really touched on that too terribly much, but the searches for Karen after she went missing were, from what I understand, focused down by the river because that was supposed to have been where her phone last pinged. So it wasn't till a little later that they actually refocused the, sur- the search back up toward her house. And another thing I'd like to add is Kathy Bona on the audio said that Karen's last text went out at 1.40 a.m. That's a great point, Tracy. Okay, so let me clarify for our listeners because they may not realize this, but Karen actually had multiple phones. And one of the things that we learned from the audio that we obtained of Karen's son speaking with the Bonas just a couple of days after Karen went missing was that Karen was using a phone that was on Bill Bona's business line. So when Kathy talked about the last text going out at 140, she was referring to uh, a text going out from the phone on her husband's business line. Kathy had also said that those texts were between Karen and a friend. She does not actually say who that friend is, so um, that is a mystery to me. And on the portion of when you were speaking about the tire that was man, the screw was inserted manually, we had contacted a, a gentleman that specialized and testified in court on accident 
reconstruction with tires. And he did tell us that you cannot really tell if a screw is inserted manually or was popped up in there because the heat from the road gets those tires and rubber melted and the heads of the screw and stuff get get all uh, messed up in there and you can't tell if it was manually inserted or not. Right, and that is definitely an argument to be had in court if it ever actually goes there. Okay, so this concludes our episode for today on Karen Swift. I hope that it was very informative. Bye, y'all. Love and light. of this world so that their souls may have peace.